This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. When I was a kid, I had a front row seat to history. My dad would take us to meet world leaders, uh, to summits, to travel the country, to travel the world. And I got to see firsthand what Canada as a middle power actually was. We didn't have the world's biggest military. We didn't have the world's biggest economy. But the relationships that Canada had, both from the perspective of the the leader and institutionally as a country, allowed us to, as many have said before, punch above our weight. And we've been instrumental in shaping world events for the better part of the 20th century and into the 21st. But uh, there is a piece in the Financial Post that says from swaggering to staggering Canada's decline into irrelevance and how over the past 10 years we have watched our country's reputation on a number of fronts evaporate before our eyes. We're joined now by Dr. Eric Cam, economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Doctor, what did you make of this article? First of all, Ben, good morning. Good morning. And I have to tell you, I'm in Fort Lauderdale, where it is now 13 degrees. 13? It's, it's 10. It's going to be 10 here. Yeah, well, it's good. 13 degrees today. Don't forget your bathing suit, but <laughs> uh, bring a pair of sweatpants for nighttime. Mm. Um, I have to tell you, that article really made me sad. And I'll tell you why. Because if you go back only about 20 years, maybe 25 years, you know, the foundation that People like your father put this country on where we had a solid credit rating, very stable economy, macroeconomic indicators trending upwards, and a really strong resource sector. People were starting to see Canada as the economic powerhouse that was just ready to get off the bench. As a matter of fact, you may remember the dollar was at par with the American dollar. I remember. People thought that our loony was ready to become a global elite currency. But unfortunately, since then, so much has gone wrong. And one of the things I wanted to concentrate on today is insolvencies and bankruptcies. Because in a year, a year, Ben, business insolvencies are up more than 41% and 23% if you include personal insolvencies. And just a quick example before I run out of oxygen (laughs) is that we know that during CERB, Far too many firms, 900,000 firms received government support. But now that has to be paid back. And right now, remember that money that was borrowed at 0% Mm -hmm. is now owed at 5%. One fifth of the companies have not paid back the loans yet. And so with that little double whammy of the money has to be paid back, it was borrowed at zero, has to go back at five. I'm afraid that this bankruptcy trend, Ben, is just beginning. Uh, I got to say, it is the most Canadian scenario that a program designed to help businesses weather economic headwinds could potentially directly lead to those same businesses filing for bankruptcy. I don't disagree. And I think I have been well stated on many chorus channels saying that we made some gross errors during CERB. I think the government may have had its heart in the right place, but its brain wasn't. And I'll give you another example to your point. You know, credit cards were introduced to help people manage their debt. 
and manage their credit. Well, right now in Canada, if you add it up, credit card debt, which we know, Ben, is the single worst type of debt you can have because in real terms, it's at about 30% interest. You might as well go to a loan shark. Canadians owe about $12 billion on their credit cards. And that number is up 16%. When you combine that, Ben, with the fact that a, a, a staggering number of Canadians are one paycheck away from insolvency, when you marry all these factors together, it really is no wonder that our macroeconomic forecast is so sad. Yeah, well, look, I, I saw something online. I'm not entirely sure if it's accurate, but it feels accurate. Somebody pointed out that if Canada were to one day just decide that it wanted to be the 51st American state and join the union, we would be, uh, of all the other 50 states, we would be the most impoverished, the most in debt, with the lowest um, household income, and so on and so on and so on. And when you put it in perspective, you know, this, the Canadian exceptionalism that I think we, we grew up with uh, is not the reality of today. I think a lot of it is about leadership. I mean, there are some problems in the economy that are just right now staggering. The fact that when you have the demand issues, because spending has not gone back to its pre-pandemic levels, and then you have the peel back in supply that started with the supply chain, which is still getting figured out through the system, there was only one way for prices to go. Prices were going to go up. But when you combine that again with the poor management, and I like the leader of the Bank of Canada. Dr. Macklem is a smart person. I actually know him. But I will never understand the speed of going from 0.25% to 5% in, in less than two years. I, will, I, I know it had to be done. We had to bring up the real interest rate. But for the life of me, Ben, I will never understand the speed yeah. and the urgency, because when that is done, who what is it doing? You're just putting a ridiculous amount of pressure on what we like to call average Canadian wage earners. And now we're at a point in our country, especially in urban centers, where feeding your children, housing your children, clothing your children has become a luxury, Ben. Well, I'm talking to Dr. Eric Cam. We're talking about Canada's dwindling reputation, both at home and abroad. And we spent a good chunk of this conversation talking about uh, sort of the, the the pillars of the country internally. Let's let's pivot and let's look at uh, Canada when, when when our leaders speak to the world. By and large, we don't get the reaction today that we used to. No, because we can't be taken seriously the way we used to. When I was a younger person, a prime minister who had a similar name as you said that we needed free trade. We had to bring it in. It was going to be rocky, but it was going to help secure our future. And he was right. And I think about that a lot because I look now at leadership. I remember when our current leader said some quote, and I'm paraphrasing, about how he has no time for monetary policy and the economy cures itself. You'll well, forgive me if I don't have the time to think about monetary policy. That that well, was, that was more or less the line. Yeah. And I think a lot of Canadians aren't going to have the time to vote for him <laughs> if he runs in the next election. But, you know, and, uh, but doctor, we, you know, we, we've seen the examples we've seen when, when uh, the prime minister, whether it's a principled stand or not, you know, when he was, when he was, tried, when he was um, going toe to toe with the Indian government over the suspected assassination on Canadian soil. I think most Canadians thought, okay, standing up for, for Canadian values, standing up for our sovereignty. And, and the, um, the Indian government was all over him on Twitter. 
And I don't, I don't remember that ever happening before. And the same thing has happened with Israel and the same thing has happened, would ha- would happen with, with Trump. It's, uh, it's, there is no, there is no room in the, in the, in the um, global political debate for what Canada has to say. It's about leadership, Ben. It's always been about leadership. Really quickly, what about our resource sector? The world was crying out for Canada's resources after the Ukrainian invasion, and Canada could not answer the bell. We should have been the choice of a country to provide Europe with what was taken away during the war, but we couldn't do it. We have a country so rich in natural resources, it is our comparative advantage. And yet, even though every economics textbook ever written says you should exploit your comparative advantages, this country doesn't. And to me, that speaks directly to leadership and the void in leadership that, to your point, leaves us lacking in the world. Well, and and that's that's a, a, a like a, sim, a simple aspect of leadership that I think this government needs to pay attention to, which is when the facts on the ground change, then your policy has to change. If the reality that you're met with uh, after you've you've implemented a policy, if it, if it changes, then 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 you have to change the policy. And we've been living with a carbon tax and we've been living with uh, policies that are keeping all of our natural resources in the ground. And what, what have we seen? Well, we've seen that the um, we've seen that the um, uh, our our carbon, uh, our carbon footprint has not gotten one iota smaller and every Canadian has gotten poorer. Now, those are two pretty big metrics that this government should be paying attention to that they absolutely aren't. To me, it's the biggest metric, and I don't understand the obsession with this net zero mission. Now, I'll tell you the truth. You know, you and I are both husbands and parents. We would like clean air and clean water. No one's going to vote. You know, no one's going to say that that's a bad idea. The problem is wrong policies at the wrong time. Mm. Everybody knows that you pursue policies like that when your economy is booming and you have the luxury of watching gross domestic product rise and consumption rise that you can do other things. Why the government is so obsessed right now with implementing new taxes that are so regressive and so reduce people's disposable income when thanks to the pandemic, I mean, even if you want to forgive the government for the pandemic, I don't, but if you want to, you can. Why now? It is the all of these policies, they just seem to be the wrong policy at the wrong time. And it's as if, to your point, there's no adapting and there's no learning on the part of the government. And I think they're going to pay the ultimate price for that very soon. I, um, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who works at a think tank, and she told me that uh, that a consumption tax like the carbon tax uh, is a very conservative idea and, and conservatives should get behind it. And I pointed out, well, yes, it, it would be if it existed independent of all these other taxes that the, 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 the liberal government seems addicted to. Uh, it's sort of like a um, only Nixon could go to China sort of thing. Only a conservative would be able to implement a, a, a carbon tax properly because you know that it wouldn't be followed by these myriad other uh, taxes that we now now have to pay. Uh, Eric, I wish we could talk longer. It's been a great conversation. I thank you very much and enjoy that 13 degree balmy weather in Fort Lauderdale. I'm going to save you some suntan lotion. <laughs> Benedict, stay healthy. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm joined now by Anthony Fury, 640 contributor and former mayor or candidate. Uh, Anthony, let's talk about Pierre Poliev. He had a busy day yesterday. He made headlines for a couple of different reasons. 
Hey, Ben. Yeah, you got it. Pierre, uh, always front and center of the news. It's interesting. I find the liberals more act like an opposition party these days because they're just so focused on talking about Pierre and criticizing him. All the news goes to him. Well, let's talk about the two things that he did do yesterday. And I got to say, the first thing uh, that we've been talking about all morning, um, proof of uh, proof of of age of of majority, if you want to consume adult content online, is uh, there's a, a there's a bill that's making its way through the Senate. Pierre is all in favor of it. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think people back the spirit of the idea that there's uh, a lot of things online that you don't want kids accessing, and this is one of them. I guess the question is the implementation, the workability, uh, different ideas that have been floated around the world include like a facial recognition uh, scan before you can access that adult content. And you go, oh, okay, that's actually more of a brave new world thing. I wasn't expecting to go down that path. It's funny, Ben, I, I, I read somewhere uh, years ago that the adult entertainment industry is always the leading pioneer of new technology. Oh, yeah. Like they, they embrace these things before anyone they, else They does. picked VHS so, over Betamax, and we all know what happened to Betamax. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's kind of wild to think that the most sort of unexpected AI or tech or facial recognition software would come related to that industry. I, I think the workability is, is what has people all asking questions here. Well, and, and yeah, so on one side, you've got, I guess this bill is kind of light on details right now, which is a little frustrating. I think that they should, other other places around the world have done something like this before, so we should be able to um, adopt some best practices. But the the problem is, who does the age check? And the porn companies are saying this should happen remotely on the person's phone. Lo- sorry, locally on, on that person's phone. I don't understand why, I mean, why the porn companies should have to do every single individual um, check. And I like the idea of keeping it all on my phone because I don't want anyone having my information. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that's the frustration. Whether or not it's uh, collecting people's information to say, hey, look at this uh, adult content they're looking at, or just to collect people's information more broadly. We were talking about the idea of, uh, carding to enter all LCBOs because they're doing the pilot project up, <laughs> up north, and, and people don't like that. And that's just about showing up, uh, picking up some alcohol. Yeah. So I, I don't even think it necessarily has to do with the adult content angle, although that, that, that adds an element to it. It's just the idea that uh, you're going to be digitally tracked and scanned for something. And that's, that's where the frustrations are coming in. I know Pierre Polyev has said, oh, no, I don't support a digital ID imposition. So it's like, okay, great. But how are you going to bring this about then? Yeah. And uh, I tell you, the one thing that people will not stand for is if they have to show their ID every single time they go to a website. If this if this technology existed locally on somebody's phone, then it's there forever and they could just press a button or or put it on their keychain and boom, they are watching and enjoying whatever they want to watch and enjoy. <laughs> uh, let's talk. Let's talk about Pierre's second uh, piece of news yesterday. He waded into the what can be controversial waters of transgender rights. Yeah, well, I think Pierre was actually just responding to a question. He was asked by media, "Are you going to ban uh, biological males, uh, trans women from women's spaces?" And he basically said, "Yeah, I think that should happen." Uh, or or I, I don't think he said he's going to do an outright ban. He just said, I do think that women's spaces should be for women, for biological women. Uh, he wasn't proposing any policy, 
And I think it came with the caveat if he said, well, I don't even know what's really in the federal jurisdiction over yeah. that. A lot of it is municipal and provincial. Ben, I don't think Pierre Polyev is being a, a leader on this at all. I think he's following uh, winds of change here where a lot of just regular folks are looking at what's going on with this issue and seeing it's moving very fast and it's moving in some very aggressive directions and they're not feeling too good yeah, about and, it. And, and I, I agree with you, but part of leadership is sometimes listening to the crowd and deciding whether or not you want to j- jump to the head of that crowd and lead it. And the, the majority of Canadians absolutely support his position. And so long as it gets, so long as whatever a conservative position is on transgender rights, it involves empathy and respect for uh, for transgender Canadians. I think it's a winning strategy for him. No, I do. And when you talk about empathy and respect, that video that Danielle Smith posted on her policy concerning uh, transgender medical treatments and children, it really began with a number of. Uh, comments about the empathy and respect and that we have to look out for all children wherever they are in life. And I thought it was actually a very, a very human and, uh, and uh, you know, unexpectedly uh, emotional and open statement to hear from a politician. So the vilification that Danielle Smith received for that is, is kind of bizarre. I think a lot of people go, look, we respect uh, adults' rights to make uh, whatever choices they want to make. But when it comes to major changes being done to children, they're not so sure about that. Also, when you see more broadly uh, the increasing stories of people in competitive sports who are winning uh, gold, silver, bronze, and they are trans people, folks go, hmm, there's a fairness issue. And none other than Caitlyn Jenner has said it comes down to the fairness issue. So Caitlyn Jenner doesn't support a lot of this. And we've seen more severe activism uh, when it comes to sort of women's spaces. The Vancouver Rape Crisis Center actually lost some of its funding uh, because activists were angry that that center says they won't allow biological males to be in this women's shelter facility. And it's like, come on here. I think regular people know, let's just be reasonable. Uh, People of all sort of politics and walks of life. And and increasingly, Ben, as you know, this isn't about uh, conservative male politicians dominating the conversation. This is actually a lot of feminist groups who are stepping up and saying we want to see change. Anthony Fury, thank you so much for waking up and uh, helping us uh, wade through these two stories. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. You know, there are a lot of examples in popular culture of stories of uh, human trafficking. And every time I have watched one of those movies, I scream at the TV. I, I say, like, can't you see that this guy is a bad guy? Like, why are you so trusting of this guy who is clearly, clearly has nefarious plans for the, the protagonist in the movie? But now there's an article in the Toronto Star that really explains how things can go wrong. A woman by the name of Nicole met the wrong man. He groomed her, incrementally isolated her from her family, convinced her to take a job as a stripper, then pimped her out as a high-priced escort, moved her to Toronto with promises of a financially enriching future for them as a couple. But instead, he secluded her in a basement apartment as she steadily sought numbing refuge in alcohol. This is called the Romeo effect. And before I I continue uh, talking about it, let's bring in our guest who knows far more about this than I, Yona Budd, the host of At Your Best on Chorus Radio and a crisis therapist. Yona, I have to assume that you've heard stories 
like Nicole's before. Yes. Good morning, Ben. Yes, I have, um, you know, firsthand experiences working with uh, patients who are in uh, recovery from being victims of human trafficking. So uh, see them, heard about them, uh, treated people with uh, with uh, the necessary, uh, that end up with the, the traumatic stress that comes as a result of living in that kind of environment. And it's, it's super scary. It's super prevalent and it's ongoing today, uh, more, more zealous than ever. Well, uh, the, this this story is heartbreaking, but yes, as you said, that it happens often. As a matter of fact, uh, between 2012 and 2022, there were 3,108 detected victims reported to the police. Detected means, I mean, there's that means there also have to be some undetected ones, and one in four are under the age of 18. So yeah. this is, are things getting better or worse in the fight against human trafficking? They're getting worse. And, and <clears throat> they're get, they're getting worse. There, there there are more players in the game. Uh, there are more uh, uh, more users, more more people that are actually looking to have sex with underage girls, uh, sometimes boys, but in most the most case, underage girls. Um, it seems to be a huge attraction for uh, Canadian business people, Canadian uh, Canadian men that uh, are looking to find these kinds of experiences. So um, the problem is that the demand is so great that uh, those that can profit from it uh, continue to flourish and newcomers come out of the woodwork. Uh, not, you know, some organized, some not so organized. Uh, so it's a big, big deal. And uh, these are not necessarily just, you know, victims, you know, people that have come off a boat from somewhere or come off an airplane or moved to a country or been taken from another country. That's certainly a big part of it. But a lot of it are just, you know, local, small town, you know, sometimes big town, but mostly small town, uh, girls that are just trying to, you know, get away from either a bad situation at home or looking for fame and fortune in Toronto or Vancouver or something, and they get scooped up by someone who romances them. In some cases, in some case they beat them and provide drugs. And, <coughs> excuse me, and drugs and such. And uh, once you're in, it's hard to get out. But Yona, let's talk about this grooming practice because, like I said off the top, you know, as an observer from the outside. I would think I would I would see the signs. I would I would know what to look for, but clearly that's not the case. No, it's not the case. And you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certain you come from a place where you know you're you have some family that are caring and loving and supportive. You know, for a lot of these uh, young people that get wrapped up in in this kind of uh, world in this horrible uh, kind of jailhouse sentence, if you will, it's, it's kind of the same as being convicted for some kind of uh, crime that you end up, you know, doing some kind of time for, yeah, it's hard to get out. But, you know, when, when you're looking for love, you know, you look for love in all the wrong places yeah. and someone comes up and they wine you and dine you and buy you some clothes and pick you up in a nice car and take you to a nice hotel and, you know, do that for a month or so. And then slowly, you know, that love affair, that love relationship turns into, Hey, you know, we really need to make some money. You know, I have a buddy that runs a strip joint. I think it's something you should try to do. And then it goes from there. That's, that's, that's the Romeo effect. Yeah. Then there's a whole other side where you're just basically kidnapped, kept, kept against your will, uh, drugged into uh, submission, and then forced you know, from motel to motel to motel uh, to generate money. I mean, each, each one of these girls generates somewhere between $250,000 and $350,000 per year. So it's highly profitable. It's, 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 it's disgusting as it's, well. It's, and you know what, Ben? I've, I've watched four TV shows and two movies in the last three weeks, and all of them that the crime story was all about human trafficking. Yeah, it's uh, it, I, it's everywhere. Well, it's because of the global. I think the global um, reach of it, 
and how yeah. insidious it is and how yeah. it's a it's a gendered crime. Uh, 99% of of those in in human trafficking are women. You put all of that together and the fact that it could be my daughter or my niece uh, or yeah. my wife, you know, th- th- there's a, something very personal about yeah. uh, about human trafficking. So, so what needs to what needs to change Yona, uh, f- uh, at the federal level to start making inroads and in improving oh the situation. Gosh. So first of all, I think the crime needs to come with a much higher penalty. Uh, I don't think that we do a good enough job of, of, of actually, you know, penalizing the, those that you know create the crime, uh, got to get rid of the stigma. We got to talk more about it. Uh, you know, for everyone that's, uh, every one person that, that admits to it or, or reports it, there's probably, you know, five or six that don't. So huge percentage left unreported. Um, but this, you know, it, it's it, the, the problem we have here is that, you know, we don't have, again, it comes back to social services and good mental health and, and family supports. You know, a lot of these young, young people are coming out of, you know, domestically, uh, domestic situations that aren't, that aren't positive, that, uh, sometimes they're violent. Sometimes there's, uh, you know, uh, sex amongst the, amongst relatives. Um, so, you know, they're trying to, you know, these young people are trying to get away from something, you know, not, not good. And they're ending up in, in what they believe is a much better situation. So we have to provide more care and more support. We need to pay more attention at the school level. Uh, so teachers and principals, people like that need to start paying attention to some of the girls and some of the young people that aren't acting normally and, and, and are suddenly wearing clothes that they shouldn't be able to afford and all that kind of stuff for, for some that are slowly being groomed and still allowed to go to school until they become isolated. So we need to do a better job as a society to protect it. These are, these are your neighbors. These are the kids that live down the street from you, Ben, or around the yeah. corner or in, or in the apartment complex. You know, we see them walking to school in the morning. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are, are not well uh, monitored. A lot of young people are not well monitored. They're kind of left on their own. Um, so we're just doing a lousy job of, of trapping and protecting young people uh, from those that take advantage. You know, the, years ago when I first started on doing street work, you know, I used to go down to the bus station in Toronto, downtown Toronto, and you'd see all the pimps waiting for the girls to get off the buses. And uh, that's where we would do our interventions. So it's not like that anymore. Now with the advent of, of technology and, and social media, uh, it's almost impossible to, to recognize and find it all. And uh, everything that slips, all the ones that slip through the cracks are the girls and the, and the young people that we find out about somewhere down the road when they're found up, you know, dead somewhere or, uh, you know, somehow roaming the streets in a, in a terrible state of physical and mental health. So uh, we just have to pay better attention as a community and as a society to this as a real problem and uh, start, you know, start blowing the whistle. Yona Bud, host of At Your Best on Chorus Radio, crisis therapist, great Great to chat with you again. Your insights on this, invaluable. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ben. Make it a great day, buddy.